strange. These strag leaders, they're all brunettes. Not a blonde amongst them. Brunettes are troublemakers. They're worse than the Jews. Then wipe them out. Too small. Not so fast. We get rid of the Jews first, then concentrate on the brunettes. She'll never have peace until we have a pure Aryan race. How wonderful. Tolmania, a nation of blue-eyed blondes. Why not a blonde Europe, a blonde Asia, a blonde America? Blonde world. And a brunette dictator. Dictator of the world. Why not? Art Caesar, Art Nullus. The world is effete, worn out, afraid. No nation would dare to oppose you. Dictator of the world. It's your destiny. We'll kill off the Jews. Wipe out the brunettes. Then will come forth our dream, a pure Aryan race. Beautiful blonde Aryans. They will love you, they will adore you. They will worship you as a god. <gasps> no, no, you mustn't say it. You make me afraid of myself. That was Charlie Chaplin as Herr Hinkle the eponymous leader of 1940's The Great Dictator. I think it's based on someone famous. From a dictator of the past to a very modern one, Kim Jong-un makes his evil reach felt this week as we review new documentary Assassins. Plus, a rogue tweet sends us on an adventure on the high seas in What Have You Been Watching? We don't know what we're doing, we're just talking about films, and films are better than people. I'm Lawrence. And I'm Sam. Hinkle the dictator ruled the nation with an iron fist. Under the new emblem of the double cross, liberty was banished, free speech was suppressed, and only the voice of Hinkle was heard. Democracy, stonk! Democracy is fragrant. Liberty, stonk! Liberty is odious. Free sprechen, stonk! Freedom of speech is objectionable. Hey, soldiers for Hinkle! So, uh, what have you been watching this week, then? Well, to, to tell you what I've been watching uh, this week, uh, there's a bit of a backstory. Um, a few weeks ago, some guy on Twitter called Ian McNabb uh, wrote the following tweet. Uh, Lots of folk complaining about lack of sleep during the pandemic. May I recommend Master and Commander starring the usually captivating, attention-grabbing Russell Crowe? I've never made it past the 10-minute mark. You're welcome. And thanks, Russell. So, sick burn there, as the young'uns say. Now, an amateur criticising a film rather than leaving it to the professionals. <laughs> uh, who are they? Uh, I think you know who they are. <laughs> yeah, this isn't an uncommon sight on the internet. However, what made this difference is that Russell Crowe responded. Or should I do it in an Australian accent? No. Are you sure I could try it? Well, he, well yeah. yeah. I think he's Kiwi as well, so... Oh, wow. I'll just... Oh, dear. Right, never mind about that. That's the problem with kids these days. No focus. Peter Weir's film is brilliant. An exacting, detail-orientated, epic tale of fidelity to empire and service, regardless of the cost. Incredible cinematography by Russell Boyd and a majestic soundtrack. Definitely an adult's movie. That was the tweet, right? So, <laughs> now, I... I had never seen Master and Commander before, but I bought it on DVD. You know, remember those things, DVDs, back in the day? I don't know, I'm getting, I'm forgetting things these days. Really. <laughs> DVDs but, are a bit too much for me. <laughs> I had never gotten round to watching it, even though I bought it on DVD. It was just one of those ones that sat on the sat on the shelf. But because of this tweet, uh, me and you gave it a shot. So um, this film is called Master and Commander. Uh, the Far Side of the World, um, it's from 2002 and directed by Peter Weir. It's the story of Captain Jack Obrey, played by Russell Crowe, a captain of the Surprise, a British naval warship in the Napoleonic Wars. On a mission to destroy a privateer vessel allied to France called the Acheron, 
The surprise is badly damaged, and with the sometimes confrontational friendship and counsel of ship's doctor, Stephen Maturin, played by Paul Bettany, they have to find a way to beat, or at least survive, their deadly enemy. All right, lads. Touch wood, Mr. Blakeney. Turn three times. May the Lord of Saints preserve. Seven weeks sailing, and he happened on our exact position. Well, then perhaps he was looking for us. Well, then, there's not a moment to lose. Yeah, this is a film that uh, I I hadn't seen, uh, but I was vaguely aware of, uh, because I think mainly because it came out in the same year as Pirates of the Caribbean. <laughs> uh, Another film about Captain Jack. Yeah, well, yeah, that's true, yeah. Two Captain Jacks in the same year. Uh, but yeah, it's one of these films. I mean, Peter Weir is a is a maverick director. I mean, he's done stuff like Witness, Dead Poets Society, The Truman Show, which is I think probably his most popular and famous film, and yeah. and The Way Back, which was um, which was the last one he made actually. Uh, but he's like someone who's really good at creating spectacle, and this is exactly what he does with Martian Commander. It's just an amazing nautical adventure. It is. It was fantastic. I absolutely loved it. It's not when you say adventure. It's interesting because it's not um, a swashbuckling film exactly. It is exciting, but it wants to give you a taste of what life was was like being on one of those ships. Um, although it's a fictional film, it's got an eye to being authentic. You know, the thing that Russell gets most right in his tweet. I'm going to call him Russell, first name <laughs> basis. You know. Piers and all that. Someday soon. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, what he gets really right is that thing about detail. There's constantly these things going on, like uh, like glasses tied together with like a little bit of string. There's like a tattoo, someone doing a, a chore in the background, like an officer yelling a command. It's just so rich with detail. And that's what it makes it feel really authentic. It makes you feel like they want to convey a real living, breathing world. And then when it's also like in macro rather than micro, uh, it looks great too that, that when they're on the water there's these amazing like sweeping shots with all the crew hanging off the, this boat and stuff and you know cannon fire and destruction on the ship just looks great uh, then when they get to the, like the Galapagos Islands there's all this great natural beauty as well just whatever distance you're viewing the film in uh, it just looks incredible yeah I watched um, a making of video actually about oh, this really? film and what they did is they got all the crew who were going to work on the boat or work on their HMS Surprise in the film and they got them together and they put them in a training camp about what it would be like to having to run a, a ship in the Napoleonic War that's part of the authenticity of this film you can really really tell because yeah. everyone looks like they belong on the ship and it looks like they know exactly what to do they know how to battle really bad weather they know how to fight another ship they know how to load the cannons and, and use the armoury so yeah that, that's something that works really really well I mean the way that they made this film is, is really really fascinating because they actually used three different ships because there's the, there was a, a miniature made by Weta, and Weta are a company from New Zealand who worked on the Lord of the Rings films and, and Avatar. But they used a miniature as well, so they got lots of shots of that. They used one real HMS Surprise, which they went out into the ocean and used, and then one replica, which was used in this huge, huge sound studio, which obviously filled with water and, and film there. So you've kind of got like a really interesting way of, of making the film from, from three different perspectives. And, and yeah, it won um, Best Cinematography and Best Sound 
editing yeah. the Oscars that year. And I think that's like a really good reward for it because, yeah, the cinematography is, is just so, so rich and deep. Every single time that you're on a ship, or on um or on the on in the ocean. Yeah. It feels it feels that you're there. It feels that you're part of the crew and that's probably the biggest compliment I can give it from a from a technical point of view. It's so ambitious in that way. I think also what I loved about it linked with this. It's it's actually trying to do something pretty hard. It's trying to bring back quite an archaic story to a big worldwide audience. You know, that's like an adventure story in the Napoleonic Navy. That's a very old-fashioned story. That's a very old-fashioned kind of film. And, and what I think it does really well is is take uh, an idea like that that would be quite a difficult pitch uh, to a modern audience and try to work out how to make it exciting and interesting for now. It wants to show the kind of environment it was, uh, both good in that it can bring out the best and the boldest in the people, but also there can be a, a toxic energy there. Uh, there's like, uh, it can be ego or superstition that can corrupt and destroy. Well, I think that's the nucleus of the film. It's as much to do with camaraderie and friendship than anything else. Yes. I think there isn't a huge amount of character development, but what is there is that, yeah, you've got these huge, you've got these dozens of characters on the ship and you see how they all fit together because obviously it being, yeah, a part of the Napoleonic War and it being like a, a British ship, You've got people at different different levels. So you've yes. got like you've got the captain, you've got the first lieutenant, you've got the second lieutenant, and then you've got the midshipman, and then below, and then you've got the slaves, which they don't really touch on. But uh, <laughs> maybe maybe they had a bit too much uh, on their hands to, to cover all of that. I think it was if, if this film was made in twenty twenty one, maybe they'd be a bit more focused on the slaves. But we won't we won't distract ourselves no, too much, not. like the film didn't. Um, <laughs> but no. No, no, but it is um, it is a lot to do with friendship as well. It's about it's about Aubrey and it's about uh, maturing. It's about it Russell Crowe, it's about Paul Bettany, those two characters, and and Aubrey is sharp, cavaliering, and inspiring. Uh, maturing is more reserved and reticent, but has this sort of quiet intelligence and integrity, and you can really see that. And I think there are times in this film where they clash, and you can see that they are slightly different people, but eventually you see that they they do they do come together and they do help each other out. I think Aubrey as the captain, he needs he needs that reliability from Dr. Maturin and and that is really, really nice. I really love the the scenes on the Galapagos Islands because that's essentially about the age of discovery and the age yeah. of about scientific enlightenment. And I find that really, really interesting. This this was essentially a um yeah, a film set on the high seas, but it's also interested in the yeah in the science of um, of that time, and that was like yeah that was a really great moment for me. Yeah, I lo- I love that element of the Doctor's character that he was also like a kind of naturalist. You're absolutely right about those two because you, 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 I think that's a really good phrase. The nucleus of the film are about all these relationships, and and right at the centre of that is this relationship between these two people. It also shows really well that this uh, how well cast it is. Uh, I think this is Russell Crowe kind of post Gladiator, and he's had a really funny career because he's this he's an A lister and he's known for being in these these big like household name films. Um, and then in recent years, he sort of got a bit sillier and kind of hammier in his roles, which is also really entertaining. But it's kind of interesting looking back at this role and this point in his career because actually it balances those two sides of him really well uh on the one hand he's a kind of an idealized navy hero and an english gent which is quite hammy but then he does have this real charisma and you believe that he's a brilliant leader he, he does have this depth to him as well like this 
this ego, this thing, as you said, like when they clash. Because Stephen, the doctor, played by Paul Bettany, is a lot more grounded. He's an intellectual. And he calls out his, his, his ego as well. He's a, he's yeah. a bit more sceptical of the world and, and stuff. And I just love watching Paul Bettany. Such a watchable actor. At pretty much anything he does, he can just elevate. He brings this like class and depth and just layers to everything he does. And obviously they'd work together on A Beautiful Mind. So I think that's yeah, something that helps yeah, yeah, when... Yeah. When it, so yeah, A Beautiful Mind, directed by, by Ron Howard, and that's with, with Russell Crowe and Paul Bettany. And sometimes once you have that relationship as actors, and you then bring it into another film, it can work really, really well. Yeah, they're really, really great together. And um, The first time we see Captain Jack... Um, oh, I shouldn't say Captain Jack, because that just makes you think of a completely <laughs> different character. The first time we see... Uh, and this is a better performance by <laughs> Russell Crowe anyway. Um, if the, only we'd seen four or five more films of Master and Commander. Then. Uh, I would I would love to see... Uh, yeah, if I could swap some of the Pirates of the Caribbean films... This whole other thing we won't go into now. But I do love that first Pirates of the Caribbean film. But yeah, we could have used a lot more Master and Commander uh, definitely after seeing this. So the first time we see Captain Aubrey and uh, Dr. Stephen, it, it's in the middle of an emergency. It's not like this heroic entry where, like, you know, on top of the crow's nest or something like, like that. Like, um, you know, like, like actually Captain Jack does. Uh, but uh, in, in Pirates of the Caribbean... Uh, but it's it's actually like Stephen uh, somberly like laying out his surgical instruments because violence might be about to come, and so he has to be ready and he has to get himself prepared for that. And um, the captain having to push his way out of his quarters and pass the men uh, in this chaos and having to make split second decisions that could save lives. Like I say, these, these aren't heroic entries. They, this is this is a completely different way of introducing these characters in this setting. It feels very different. There's a wonderful scene towards the end of the film where uh, I think Paul Bettany's, uh, his character maturing is playing the cello mm. and Russell Crowe's playing the, um, the violin. They're playing it together. Um, and you can see that there's, there's this harmony between the two, this unspoken harmony, and that's a really, really clever way of, of showing it and symbolising it. That's, yeah. Um, yeah, that was really, really good. There's a recurring thing of them playing these instruments, the cello and the violin, uh, together. And actually, it's the, in the final moments of the film they're doing this. And it's a really great way to, to, to finish the film because I think it shows what the film does really, really well. The final bit of it is over shots of the ship being really busy and, and readying for action again. Um, they're still finishing up their session. They're playing their instruments, but this time they put them on their sides and start strumming them like guitars. It's like a moment that these are like Napoleonic English Navy gentlemen, but this is not meant to be conventional they're not exactly conventional people because this isn't exactly a conventional napoleonic film it, it's trying to be a little bit different it's trying to be a little bit fresh just like they are with their upper class instruments you know it's supposed to be a new spin on something old you know it, it it's even more baffling about the tweet because as well it is, it is a really exciting film it starts on some action which is a really great way to start a film like this. And then it keeps up the pace and tension. It's really well structured. There's all these great moments in it, all these little moments of ingenuity that, that, that the crew do, as well as there being like kind of exciting moments and quieter moments, but also like moments that showcase like a, like a darker side of the Navy and character moments. Like, Well, actually, I was going to say about that, because I think one of the great things that it does is shows that death doesn't discriminate on the sea. Yeah. Like, I think you get, uh, you get lots of different deaths throughout the film. 
and there is this sense of loss and that it could happen to anyone at any time and yeah. I think that's sort of true to the fact really that I think when you're probably fighting in a Napoleonic War or where you're you're battling another ship then it could take anyone at any time so that's like a really good way to heighten the tension it does and it can sh- it shows you how how suddenly uh, death can take you and how affecting and and difficult it still is you know it shows the relationships that everyone has between one another and how haunting it could be because everyone's wrapped up in everyone else like it's it's good you know you, you get a sense you definitely get a sense like Captain Aubrey really cares for his crew as much as he understands that he has to lead that crew as well after saying all this and after loving it you know I really really love this this film um, like the first thing I wanted to actually say about the tweet that he put out is that all kidding aside it is actually a really great little review like I don't know many actors that would be able to describe their own work so well as uh, Russell does in this this tweet, but it perfectly captures a lot of the great stuff about Master and Commander in a tweet. Like just that little line about like the de- it being detail orientated. That's that's a great fit. That's that's the exact kind of thing a critic should be doing because that after seeing that tweet, that's absolutely what shone out from Master and Commander. He really highlighted that for me, and I, I think that's what. Um, a good That's why you does. watched it. That's why we watched it. <laughs> That's why we watched it. Exactly. If Russell Crowe hadn't responded to a troll, we wouldn't have been able to see Marshall <laughs> Commander. I know. Maybe more actors should do it more often. Maybe they should. I think I don't highlight know. some of their better work that it's maybe been uh, forgotten about. That would be great. I'd love to see that. Uh, I'd love to see people like trying to talk about. I had a great story on the uh, behind the scenes where he'd gone on set two weeks early because he wanted to see how they were filming it and, and what they were they, what they were doing on the ship and what they were doing on the set. And because he was Captain Jack, then when they were actually filming it, lots of people kept coming up to him and being like, do you know what they're doing next? Or when are we filming this bit or that? Because he was the captain. Because <laughs> he was the captain. That, like People were just coming up and doing it, not because he was the star of the film, because he was wearing the captain's uniform. And they were like, oh, you must know what's going on. Amazing. But like again, I, I think that's also a credit to Peter Weir, who has got this rep for making like really authentic films and like always going the extra mile and being quite ambitious in his filmmaking. Even if he's not always as prolific as other filmmakers have been, and maybe he's not as, as much of a household name, like it goes to show what he wanted to make and that his, his ambition to make something like this would have the effect of turning Russell Crowe into a real Navy captain, <laughs> to, in effect. I want to ask you, after watching this, what you actually thought about the original tweet. Because film Twitter did notice this thing from Russell Crowe, and a lot of people came up to defend Master and Commander and, and, and like say how good it was. I mean, what, what, was, what was funny is the guy that wrote the tweet isn't actually that much of a young'un. He's not an OAP, but he's not actually like a young'un. But like, I, I do kind of understand the sentiment. It can seem like there's sometimes like a real ADHD culture amongst films like sometimes I'm quite optimistic but sometimes it does feel like people can barely focus on anything longer than a TikTok video and they won't take a chance on certain kinds of stories new ones and old ones like this do you think Crow was right that there's like a a culture where something like Master and Commander which actually I think is a brilliant film maybe we we have lost the ability to to watch these kind of things en masse so what I think Russell Crowe's right about is that big budget risks less filmmakers now or less studios are making films like Master and Commander because it would be deemed too much of a risk 
because I think this film cost about 150, 160 million dollars when it was made, and you can tell it's a very, very expensive and lavish film because it has to be because yeah. you know it's um, a film about a uh, a 19th century ship that is is you know part of the Napoleonic War. They're going to try and make it as realistic as possible. A lot of money has gone into this, and yeah, I, I think at that end of the scale, they've kind of stopped making films like this, big budget films with with pathos and which are targeted for a, a certain audience. But it, you can still find these type of films, but not made for the same amount of money and probably not about the same sort of subject. So I kind of see what you mean, but I think it's just the case that perhaps more of this money has gone elsewhere. Maybe it's gone to Netflix or maybe it's gone to other services that do video on demand. Do you, do you think we do have a problem with audiences keeping their attention for something like this? Or or do you, do you think it's just the studios? Do you think there is... Do you think audiences can still get interested in this and stick with it? Or is it just going to... They're going to use it as a, a sleep aid? I'd, I'd like to think so. I'd like to think so. It's obviously really, really hard to tell. But I think a film like this, which is high quality, if you did stick with it for more than 10 minutes, you'd, you'd watch it all the way through. I think anybody would, to be honest. And yeah. Anybody interested in big budget films with a conscience and with a bit of heart and that really care about its audience and visual effects then those films will live forever yeah I guess sometimes maybe maybe a better way of putting it is like sometimes I guess it feels like people don't always take these films as seriously anymore I hate to sound like a stick in the mud but it's just they kind of see Russell Crowe on the on a ship and they, kind of, they just kind of just don't really take it seriously when I say it like that it makes it sound like you shouldn't take it seriously maybe that's also like part of the 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 problem maybe like they snort a bit at an epic like this rather than wanting to, to see what it's got yeah I mean those people are idiots though like, you know, <laughs> this film I mean this film should be treasured but as, as I've said I think this is a bit of a relic they don't make big budget films which you know really try and make it authentic as possible you know I've, I've said before about that, like how they made the film how they created the film the the time and the preparation that went into filming it and the amount of experts that they got, not only just on set, but in post-production as well, the, the visual effects. They sent people who were working on the visual effects onto actual boats, going to places that were similar to this, dealing with storms, filming storms, so they could get the most realistic sea possible, the most uh, realistic rain possible. You know, they, they, they really went all out and, okay, maybe it's cheating a little bit to watch the behind the scenes because then you, you see the amount of care and attention that went into a film like this but it is really inspiring it does feel different though like even if you don't know anything about it this doesn't feel like other films when you, when you watch it you do come out of it with, with a different kind of experience I don't know I, 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 I think that like I sometimes I do get concerned about audiences uh, attention for stuff but then you know there, there's always good stuff coming out and there's always dynamic stuff maybe not exactly like this but there is new and exciting stuff and I, despite sometimes i feel a bit pessimistic looking at this tweet the, the response it got shows that actually no like yeah maybe they don't make films exactly like master and commander now but people still really love it and there are people that have attention spans for something like this i'd really recommend it. it's such a gem it's really really good yeah, it's a really great film, um, and I hope it gets a bit more love, really, after Russell Crowe's tweet. But yeah, yeah, he tweeted this out um, a couple of weeks ago, and, and even just this week, Russell Crowe sent a message to Pip Hare, who is a sailor taking part in a round-the-world yacht race. So even though this film is nearly 20 years old, it, it has been referenced recently, and I think that's really nice that one Master and Commander wishes another Master and Commander a happy birthday. <laughs> I'd rather have them three sheets to the wind on occasion than have a mutiny on my hands. 
You see, I'm rather understanding of mutineers. Men pressed from their homes, their chosen occupations, confined for months aboard a wooden prison. Stephen, I profoundly respect your right to disagree with me here in this cabin, but I can only afford one rebel on this ship. I hate it when you talk at the surface in this way. It makes me so very low. Do you think I want to flog Nagel? A man who stood beside me on the gunnel and hacked the ropes and sent his mate to his death. Under orders. Under my orders. Do you not see it? The only things that keep this little wooden world together are hard work, discipline. Jack, the man failed to salute. For God's sake, Stephen, there's hierarchies even in nature, as you've often said yourself. There is no disdain in nature. There is no humiliation. Men must be governed. Often not wisely, I'll grant you, but they must be governed nonetheless. That's the excuse of every tyrant in history, from Nero to Bonaparte. And I, for one, am opposed to authority. Your opposition is, is not my concern. Misery and oppression. You've come to the wrong shop for anarchy, brother. So this week we watched the documentary Assassins, which is available to buy on Amazon Prime. So Sam's going to tell us the plot. Assassins follows the murder of King John Nun, the half-brother of King John Un, the North Korean leader. This was in February 2017 at Kuala Lumpur Airport, and two women were subsequently arrested for the crime. The documentary examines the involvement of these two women and whether they are innocent pawns within a deadly operation by the North Korean Secret Service. Or, as a haiku, Brother ill, feel ill. The extraordinary truth. Prank show, murder bro. Yeah? Even King Jong-un might have been proud of that. <laughs> Do you think I might have gotten sent to a work camp for writing that, or perhaps got a promotion or an ascension or, or something, whatever they, you know, give. Yeah, I think he would have been disappeared quite quickly. Ah, okay. <laughs> and here's a clip. Kim Jong-nam has been assassinated. Two women have just been arrested in connection with the murder. Kim Jong-nam was the favourite son of Kim Jong-il, the former leader of North Korea. Kim Jong-nam questioned his brother's legitimacy. He would be considered a threat by Kim Jong-un. He allegedly smeared Viet chemical onto his face. And then she looked into the TV camera. As if, yeah, I just did that, so what? The women claim they are innocent. If found guilty, they face Malaysia's mandatory death penalty. We have strong evidence to show that she's been tricked. She was paid a few hundred US dollars. Then you come from behind, close somebody's eyes, like guess who I am. She thought that she was part of a prank show. What? So, uh, I picked this for us to review because it is uh, slim pickings for UK-based film people at the moment. Uh, not every January is like that. Um, I'm struggling to try and work out why that is uh, this year. Could be, uh, oh, it could be something to do with the sort of you know worldwide global pandemic that seems to be going on. Yeah, that annoying little pandemic that seems to be uh, sticking around. But yeah, all the cinemas are closed, so um, yep, we're still watching uh, lots of video on demand. Yeah, and there's a bunch of interesting stuff coming out this year, as always, but just seems to be starting in February. So I perused around, and I found that Mark Commode had reviewed this, 
So I figured, well, if it's good enough for the good doctor, then uh might be good enough for us. Also, I didn't know anything about this. You didn't know anything about this. No, and I think that's always good going into documentaries like that. Yeah, I thought we'd go in blind. Uh, it certainly sounded like a fascinating case. I just wish someone had remembered to make it a fascinating documentary because this felt like a hastily thrown together, elongated newsnight piece rather than a proper, you know, film documentary. Wow, you've come out uh, blazing there. I didn't think, I didn't, I didn't know whether we'd flirt a little bit with the story and sort of give details because it does need to, uh, a bit of context to it. Because yeah, so I, I, before you get into perhaps why you you really disliked it, and I did really dislike it. Yeah, I, I think it's important to say that so. Kim Jong-nam, the, the guy who's murdered, was, was the firstborn of the previous North Korean leader. But he had left the country years ago, and his family had moved to China. So here he's relatively protected by the Chinese government, but he technically still has a right to the leadership of North Korea. Because in that country, the leadership is due to his lineage. So being the firstborn, then he could still technically say, oh no, I want to be leader, which will obviously piss off an absolute lunatic <laughs> like... Kim Jong-un and so yeah this is this is sort of the motive behind the crime it, it's not a very good documentary I mean I don't it is a really interesting story but it isn't a very good documentary it, but is, is that down to style for you yes it's down to everything it's down to the direction the way they present the narrative the the style of it the whole approach they take to the story there are kind of three strands to this story there's the story of the girls themselves that yeah. get accused of the murder the political context of North Korea and the trial itself. These three stories each sort of sit on a low heat and just sort of smoke gently as the hour and three quarters linger and linger and never get exciting, never have an interesting take. They just sort of tell the story. And each one of these stories is just kind of uh, peppered with a kind of familiar cocktail of talking heads low-grade computer reenactments and sinister moody music in the background which is just like sort of strings going like and then drums that sound like a heartbeat like dun 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 you sort of you just get so bored with the structure and the style you just wonder why this is being released as like a feature film in the first place and why it's not just like a like say a low rent tv news documentary but it's it's a very detailed story like, yeah. I, think, I think it's so difficult to give a story like this flair or show it in a way that has flair because ultimately you have to get through conversations with lots of different people to set the picture. So obviously we have to learn about the relationship between North Korea and Malaysia. We have to understand you know, the history of North Korea. We have to understand where the two women, City and Doan are from. So there's like a lot to get through really. Yeah, there's a lot of material you should be able to get, make a good documentary out of that. I don't know what you mean. This is why why someone's supposed to be making documentaries in the first place. It, it, there are people that have done a lot better with a lot sillier, a lot smaller story. This is this is political intrigue. This is this is a crazed dictator managing to get two women from a foreign country to think they're in a prank show in order to kill his brother, in order to win political capital, in, in a country that believes he's divinely descended from a mountain. <laughs> that, that's... I, I, I'm sorry, like, that is amazing material. That, that's, that's, that, that is juicy stuff. That is a juicy slice. You should be able to make something fucking amazing out of that. They didn't hear. They just told the story in a dull 
plodding, like milk toast way. I really hated watching this because like a third of the way through, I realised this is never heating up. This is never getting better. This is the skill of a documentary maker. You're supposed to find a story that you can tell in an interesting way. Tell me why I'm supposed to be fascinated by this. Communicate this to me. That's not what this did. It had so much rope. Yeah, I mean, maybe it is a bit too functional and maybe you weren't engaged straight away. But I still think it covers a lot of important topics because um, ostensibly the documentary is about an assassination, but it covers a lot of what's going on in Asia in the 21st century. So City, for example, one of the women who's accused of murder, comes from a rural part of Indonesia and has a baby at 17 with her boss from a sweatshop. She then divorces her husband and her son is moved to a different part of the country so she can't see him. So this already tells us a lot about the, the lack of gender rights, globalisation, and maybe even like a lack of labour um, legislation in that part of the world too. So I do think, even though, okay, it is done in a functional way, I think there's a lot to consider within the film about geopolitics. Yeah, okay, that's a fair point. Look, don't get me wrong, like, it's a great story. Like I said, this is an amazing true story. And, and yeah, maybe there is a kind of context that's interesting, but I just think that... If you want to understand something about North Korea or or Asia, then you should you could probably just find that in other sources that are much more interesting to watch. But I mean, it also looks at dictators or people who are fans of dictators, and mm, does it? I think it at the end or towards the end, it looks at the relationship between Kim Jong Un and Donald Trump, and actually, I found that quite interesting because. What happens in this documentary is that it it's, it looks at someone like King John and a dictator, right. someone that wants to at some point will probably or could cause a nuclear holocaust. And what he does is he's starting to sidle up to people in the West. You know, he has like the um, the summit with Donald Trump. Uh, he has a meeting with the South Korean leader. And I think this is a documentary that shows that this is someone who feels that he can go and murder his half brother. In, a, in another country. And I think that's quite scary. The point about these two women, Siti and Duan, they're quite clearly from, like, from the start of the film. Right. They're innocent people caught up in this storm. Yeah. And actually, like, it just shows you how dictators can affect small people in other parts of the world. I kind of quite like the idea that there's this, yeah, there's this hugely controversial well no controversial is, is, is a bad word to use this, <laughs> this evil maniac who yeah believes in this theocracy in his own country and he feels that you know he wants North Korea or he thinks that North Korea wants to be or it should be the most powerful country in the world right. and therefore he's just he doesn't mind doing any sort of evil deed or he doesn't mind murdering people of his own family in our country and even though that feels like something that is quite separate from us it can still you know he can still affect the small people in other countries as well yeah i mean he can but you know again i would have liked to see a a more in-depth documentary on kim jong-un and north korea then this is all important stuff but then it's that means that it's even more amazing about how disengaged this documentary made me I mean it is you're, you're you're absolutely right how important this is well it's almost impressive how boring the the documentary made the event seem and how they somehow made these really interesting things seem less interesting by the end 
It's that I'm actually you, you're actually just making me more impressed with the supreme crapulence of this documentary. Don't you think that the the angle for the assassination was just so bizarre, and it's something that I'd never really heard about? So essentially, these North Korean Secret Service operatives, what they do is they trick these two women into putting a deadly chemical onto King John Nam, and they do it by saying that these two women, oh, this is for a prank, this is for a prank show in yeah. Japan, and that's unbelievable, really. It like, is. Well, this, yeah. At first, it's like this is too, you know, how can these two women be so naive? But they go through the process, and you start to understand why they were duped into it. It kind of shows you the extremes of what spies and assassins will do to get their target. That was kind of like a really intriguing part of the documentary for me. Yeah, it, it is a, it's a very interesting story. But like by that point, I just felt everything had been diluted to the point where I was just not really getting anything from it. No vitamins. E- even like interesting stuff like that start to feel a bit dull when they did the text messages going back and forth on screen and the, the, the graphics. It, it just felt like I've seen this kind of thing like a million times before or I felt like I was just watching like a news story. I mean, I, I understand that thing about geopolitics as well, about like that larger thing. But even that felt a bit hackneyed. Like I said, I feel, I feel like there were these three different parts of the story and because they stayed on such a low heat, I never felt that that these things were really invested in one another. It's not that they weren't linked, because obviously that was what it was all about, that they were linked. But actually, when it started to actually feel kind of ridiculous by the end, when Kim Jong-un was, like, meeting Donald Trump, and I kind of felt like, did this have anything to do with Kim Jong-un? Or was this actually just a very small part of his radar? Am I really getting an understanding of Kim Jong-un from these events? Or, or am I just getting... Uh, actually a a horrible thing he did but a relatively small thing he did something that's not really important or doesn't really say that much about his worldview what, i'm not getting that what at all. murdering is half what, causing a murder in another country i mean I, i'd say that i'd say that's pretty that's pretty scandalous or that's something that the whole world should be aware of and again this documentary does i think that's what it wants to do it wants to show the danger and the manipulation of king jong un as he tries to work with other leaders and you have to break it down and like this 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 guy he wants to use nuclear weapons he wants to build nuclear weapons to attack other countries yeah he needs to be taken seriously so it might be a, it, to you it might be a small case but actually it's maybe something that the rest of the world isn't taking very seriously and i guess that's what they're trying to show in this documentary uh, yeah okay I'll, 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 I'll that's a good point and i guess it does also show how countries are more concerned like countries like malaysia where this murder took place they are more interested in making themselves look good rather than actually making sure that this that the truth comes out about this. They're concerned that the idea that these two girls could be duped and an assassination could have gone on underneath their nose and all the guilty parties get away. They don't want, want it to seem like that. So they do press a kind of a, a hard case against them. So I guess in that way it does show it, but no, I I think you get as much from just reading an article about this as you do from watching the documentary. I think you just read the article about the events, find uh, a better source of information about what North Korea and Kim Jong-un are all about. So yeah, I mean overall for me, like I warmed to it a lot more than than you did. It takes a couple of boxes just a little bit. That, it, it takes a couple of boxes that I like in a documentary. It, it gives more scope and detail to an international news story, and I think it is able to balance narrative with sympathetic characters. But I I understand what you mean. It doesn't 
those three strands of the story, they don't all coalesce. I do think that is a big problem. And yeah, stylistically, it's not very good. There's no technical flair. Yeah, the, the score is forgettable and doesn't really add anything to the, you know, to the drama of the story either. So that's definitely something that yeah, needs to be improved on if in other films that this production team make. I do think it, it shows the danger of dictators and, and how they affect sort of normal, everyday citizens. But I, I wouldn't be surprised if this this is on Channel 4 or BBC very soon. I'm, I'm surprised that you liked it this much. Avoid this, I'd say. There's so many good documentaries out there. You can always find something weird and wonderful. Please don't waste your time with this passionless sludge. If you're interested in the story, then one of the producers is a journalist called Doug Bock Clark, and he wrote a story that inspired this that you can read on the GQ website called The Untold Story of Kim Jong-nam's Assassination. Now, this doesn't actually take you all the way up until the trial is finished, but I think you can you can find another resource about uh, North Korea, Kim Jong-un. There's much better things out there you can read, much better documentaries you can spend your time watching. This is real proof to me that no matter how interesting the story, if you can't find a way to tell that story in a compelling and interesting way, you can completely boil it to the point where it's utterly tasteless. This was a real slog. You just hate it because you love communism and King John Un. Oh, brilliant! <laughs> you want to, you want to be, you want to move to North Korea and work under him. That's why, that's why you hate it. Brilliant. It's against your, it's against your beloved leader. This is, this is, this, this is typical slander. Okay, I mean, I, I would quite like some parades in my honour, and maybe my own basketball court would be quite good because it'd be good to get healthy after all this lockdown snacking. Hanging but... out, hanging out with statues of Karl Marx. That's what you want to do. <laughs> <laughs> the, the big statues they've got in uh, Pyongyang and big statues of me as well yes again all brilliant ideas you know yeah actually maybe you're right maybe I'm a bit hating on this because I quite like the idea of the lifestyle sounds pretty sweet I think I could rock that military garb that covers the neck as well I think I'd, I think I'd look quite fetching in that yeah I mean you know the documentary wasn't very stylish but he certainly is oh <laughs> fashion icon <laughs> Assassination has been fundamental to Kim Jong-un's leadership. Once he had taken out all his rivals, he had proven his strength domestically. I've been in jail two years. The girls have no one apart from each other. I think these girls are going to hang. In many ways, this is the perfect crime. If you liked Assassins, then Citizen K is worth watching if you're interested in how autocrats like Kim Jong-un and Vladimir Putin have an influence on power and corruption in their own countries. I've recommended Alex Gibney documentaries on here before, such as Taxi to the Dark Side and We Still Secrets, but Citizen K focuses more on the modern history of Russia by looking at Putin's treatment of Mikhail Khodorkovsky. Khodorkovsky is a Russian businessman exiled in London after serving eight years jail time in Russia. In 2005, he was imprisoned for tax evasion and money laundering, but these were charges heavily contested and, in short, were false and baseless, but used as a way to silence his dissent to Putin. While Khodorkovsky was a wealthy oligarch and built his empire in the 80s and 90s through questionable means, a route that the documentary goes down, he's one of the only men in Russia to try and hold Putin to account over corruption at the turn of the millennium. As we've seen over the years with many of Putin's enemies, Alex Navalny most recently, Khodorkovsky is stripped of his assets, put in front of a government-leaning court, 
and made an example of, so others in Russia are fearful to question the status quo. Khodorkovsky is never betrayed as a hero, but he has become a symbol of what happens to the critics of the Putin regime. Like any Gibney documentary, we have clear narration, explaining in perfect clarity the nuances of the story and why we should care about the specific events. Gibney is obsessed with the structures of power and how someone like Putin can come from a relatively modest background to be one of the most dangerous men in the modern world. Like Assassins, the style is functional and journalistic, but the narration steers the documentary through like a helpful guide. Kolokovsky is the key to the film, and while Assassins does perhaps overbear its audience with multiple components, this film centres on the struggle and ongoing battle between two men who are trying to get the upper hand in the political and financial battlefield. This doesn't hit the grand heights that Alex Gimme has in the past, but it's still a good companion to Assassins, and Little White Lies, a bi-monthly independent film magazine, did call it wildly entertaining, so hopefully it's a bit easier on the eye. I'd hope so too. <laughs> <laughs> Vladimir Putin, Mikhail Khodorkovsky is a villain, but to Putin's opponents, Khodorkovsky's 10 years in a Siberian prison made him a hero for the cause of human rights and democracy. Putin respects Khodorkovsky as a rival because Putin and Khodorkovsky are both very strong. Putin had declared that he supported liberty and openness, but even then Putin was looking to recalibrate political power and the oligarchs. And this is why he clashes with Putin. Putin is very afraid of Khodorkovsky. This is not a country of law. This is a country of dictatorship. I haven't actually seen Citizen K. It's one of the Alex Gibney ones I haven't watched. I know you're a bit more up on... Gibney than I am. What I got from that was that it's a lot more thorough study of a dictator than Assassins was. Uh, is that the case? Yeah, it is. Um, I think what's interesting is that they do sort of compare and go through the histories of Putin and Khodorkovsky. So it isn't just about Putin, like the way that Assassins wasn't just about Kim Jong-un, if you see what I mean. You basically see the upbringing of these two people, and I think they're relatively the same age. But you basically mm. see how Khodorkovsky in the 90s became sort of this really, really wealthy man. And Putin at that point was kind of still in the background of the KGB. Mm. So it's kind of interesting how it was around um, 1999 or 2000, I think, when they first started to be aware of each other. Putin tried to uh, gain the upper hand against the oligarchs and the people with most of the money in, in Russia. Yeah, and that's where Khodorkovsky started to become his enemy and his nemesis. That sounds really interesting. I might seek that out. I quite like, yeah, I quite like the sound of that. Yeah, I think it is like a little bit more fluid than Assassins. But I think Gibney's a really, really interesting character yeah. to me. Terrifying. He is like the most evil man in the world, pretty much. But uh, it'd be good to watch something that understands him. Yeah, maybe it's more relevant to European audiences as well, Citizen K. Yeah. Because obviously what Russia does, it affects Europe in some ways. I mean, Russia is probably more on the news cycle than North Korea, for example. And yeah, as I mentioned um, just in that little description, we've got um, Alex Navalny, 
who has recently gone to prison on similar charges to Mikhail Khodorkovsky. Yeah. So it does. It is an interesting way that you see that Putin still using his old methods, or you know, the Secret Service or the government that works for Putin. They're still using the same methods to arrest the same dissenters. Yeah, I do think, because this is Alex Gibney, it is directed with more confidence and more clarity. Because I know that you didn't like Assassins, because it was a little bit muddled. And from time to time, it perhaps wasn't as focused or didn't make it entertaining for its audience. But That was a problem, yeah. Because Gibney has been sort of the master in his yeah, field for so long. It's true. He is just much more better at executing this type of style and this type of story. So, yeah, I think it is much more engaging than, um, than Assassin's was. But they're still relatively comparable films. And if you didn't like this, you should watch Feels Good Man. Hey, remember Donald Trump? Yep, that did happen. Maybe in amongst a lot of the stuff you didn't understand about Trump, you've noticed his fans have an affection for a certain cartoon frog called Pepe. Well, Pepe came from someone who's about as far from the alt-right as possible, soft-spoken cartoonist Matt Fury, who wrote Pepe in his gentle and good-hearted comic, Boys Club. Feels Good Man charts the creation of Pepe, and how Fury quickly lost control as his creation morphs into a symbol for something far more sinister, and how Fury tries to win him back. So, I've picked this because assassins can be summarised as taking something massive and current and reducing it to dull with a lack of innovation. Well, Feels Good Man is also about something current, but doing what I think great documentaries should do, taking a small unknown story and giving it the powerful perspective it deserves. Feels Good Man has multiple pots on the ball, like Assassins does, but it links them together so much better, between who Fury is and where Pepe came from, into the fascinating and disturbing world of the alt-right and how they function on the internet. Instead of relying on tired techniques, they mix animation and real footage, telling the story of Pepe through Pepe and his friend's eyes as much as from people in real life. There's such a wonderful contrast here between the small, sweet-natured world of Fury, his people and his creations, and the vicious, aggressive and sadistic no-man's land of the alt-right internet. This is a recent, modern documentary, just like Assassins, but unlike Assassins, it shows all the versatility and the power of the genre. It's on BBC iPlayer right now, it's easy to love, and will stick with you for ages. became a meme. I didn't even know what a meme was. There were all these boys trying to own each other on the message boards. In drops Pepe. Right for the taking. He had gone dark. The white supremacist movement has taken over Pepe the Frog. It seems incredibly random that this frog is going to represent white supremacy creating memes, gave people who had never been involved in politics a way in. Whatever Pepe meant to all these other people didn't mean the same thing to me. I'm doing everything I can in my power to shut these assholes up. Answer the question I asked you. Can we turn a recognized hate symbol into a love symbol? Yeah, so I've seen this documentary too, and I do think that this is a good one to go to if you don't like the rather dull style of Assassins because, as you talked about, it mixes different forms really, really well. So yeah. you've got animation, you've got the sort of the standard documentary style, which is interviews and stock footage and, and other ways that um, documentarians use to tell the story. Yeah. But it does feel like it's from a completely different world 
if that if that makes sense, really. You know, this is a documentary that is just really innovative. Yeah, it's it's dynamic. I, I mean, I, I did pick it because it's so recent as well, just like Assassins is, and I, and I wanted to pick something that showed what documentaries are doing right now that is so effective and this is definitely one of them it feels like it's got a really like warm fuzzy center and like the the, the director is really really fascinated with the subject that he's covering that contrast between the warm and fuzziness of fury and his creation pepe what he originally used to be and the kind of horribleness that he turns into that's so important for like what makes the documentary effective because i think the director understands what's warm and fuzzy about Matt Fury and, and his creation and how devastating it is to watch that be twisted and mutated into something else. And yeah, all the different techniques, like the animation, like it is literally Pepe the Frog animating some of Matt Fury's comics, but also sometimes creating these new things where like Pepe is watching himself on these message boards be used as like an alt-right creation and Pepe's despair and, and own identity crisis at it, which is really entertaining. It's really fun and really like psychedelic, some of the animations and stuff, but is, is really good at parts of the documentary, really complement the story they're telling. Yeah, and I really like the way that Matt goes through this almost like comic book transformation himself because he starts off as this sort of stoner comic book writer, but then you see him go to go to court and take legal action against people of the alt-right that have been using Pepe in pretty disgusting ways. And yeah. you really understand about how this isn't just a fight for Pepe, but it's fight for liberal rights in the United States. And that's really, really <laughs> great. It's, it, it sounds mad because we're talking about a cartoon frog. When you when you see the comic that it came from, you understand the the style. You know, it's just this this sweet, charming little hug of a comic and it's so ridiculous but it but it has become something so much larger but that's important as well that journey he goes on that you're talking about and the crazy nature of of this because the story is also about the internet and about the political movements that are going on on the internet right now and what their sense of humor is and how they function the different factions the different factions and how a meme can spin so wildly out of control and that is really fascinating that's the kind of stuff that really does stay with you and the use of symbols as well how symbols can mean different things at different times yeah yeah exactly there's so many different elements to this that make it really interesting you know there's there's something about documentaries that i think they used to be seen as really stuffy but now they i think actually they can be really broad and lots of different people can really enjoy like learning something new and having a a story like opened up for them and feels good man is like a a really recent documentary that i think does everything really well i think it's a real crowd pleaser i think you could show this to pretty much anyone and they'd get something out of it and as you say it's on bbc ei player i know so literally anyone could go (laughs) go and watch it as long as you're in the uk anyone can go and see it can watch it now for free so yeah you know i really had a go at assassins this episode and some people might disagree with me but i really think that everyone should give uh, feels good man a go Thank you so much for listening to Films Are Better Than People. Be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to us on right now so you never miss an episode. We're on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts and SoundCloud. And don't forget to come follow us on Twitter at Films Are Better and like us on Facebook.com forward slash Films Are Better.